This is Daniel Miller. You are listening to Rebel Radio. Be sure to check out Larger Than Life. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh-huh. Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the rebels that are shaping our culture. We talk about how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends at EDM.com. I'm your host, Josh Levine, and in studio with me today is Daniel Miller. He's a journalist at the LA Times and the host of a new podcast, Larger Than Life. You know, for a guy that hosts a podcast uh, for the last four and a half years, I do a pretty bad job of listening to podcasts. I, I enjoy them, but, you know, there just seems to be no time. But every once in a while, I find one that really captures my attention and I can lose myself in the story or, or whatever. And uh, Larger Than Life is one of those. It's, um, it's presented by the LA Times and it covers the story of a man called Big Willie Robinson who was kind of a pioneer leader in the street racing scene here in Los Angeles. Um, And as you know, LA is the the home of car culture in the United States. Um, And this story really tells how car culture, race relations, politics, the streets, the government, all of that comes together uh, in one place on a racetrack down in South LA. So really good things. Um, and great, great stories from Daniel about his own journey putting this together and, and getting, uh, getting on the mic. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. We're going to get into it right after our EDM.com track of the week. Shady bad, fuck a friend, shady mask, and I'll roll, don't be masked on my soul, don't be sad. I have you up in the night, in the night, in the night, in the night, have you up in the night, in the night, in the night, in the night, fuck again, shady bad, fuck a friend, shady mask, and I'll roll, don't be masked on my soul, don't be sad. That was GXX with In The Night, the EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, get over to EDM.com and check out more new music. And let's get into our interview with Daniel Miller. Yeah, UCLA from 2001 to 2005, and The Strokes had just come out. Uh And, you know, this, like, sort of garage revival was happening, and I got to see all these bands come through the Vines. A bunch of them are all gone now. Totally. But I'd go to the Troubadour and see them when they'd come through L.A. Same here. Yeah. It was like free tickets, free CDs. It was so cool. And that was that was the allure of, of of being a sports reporter too. They'd fly me across the country to go cover the football team. And wow. uh, but then suddenly you realize, you know, you're not a fan anymore. Right. You are on deadline, and you're at that football stadium for nine hours. Totally. And it changes everything. Totally. Did music? Did that happen for you with music? Yeah. Ten years later, I was like, I don't like music anymore. Yeah. Like I know the people too intimately. And that's interfering with my enjoyment and I'm dissecting everything. And I had, I was writing an article that, remember the LA Village View? Okay. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Which was like, you know. The Village Voice equivalent out here? uh, No. So it was like a wannabe weekly. I mean, you know, it was a second to the LA Weekly. Sure. And um, uh, I was writing a review saying how this record sounds like everything else. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, my review is just like everything else. Yeah. Oh, and I, so I quit that day. Wow. I was like, I just can't do it anymore. I mean, criticism is tough. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a couple car reviews for, for us last year as yeah. I was getting into this process of doing this podcast. And it was a lot of fun to drive the cars, of course. But, um, man, it was, it's, it's a whole different ballgame, criticism. Sure. And trying to convey your thoughts about a product like that it was it was it was a really interesting exercise but i don't think i was cut out for it is that right yeah i'm not sure it's i would funny. do it again huh well uh speaking of cars and thank you for being here sure of course are we we're in we're yeah yeah we're go. in um, i'm excited to talk to you about your path and about larger than life 
sure. and podcasting and, and all that. So, um, but I, I heard you uh, in the show describe yourself as a gearhead. Yeah. Um, what was your first car? So my first car was a 1990 red Mazda Miata. Okay. Which I think had a five-speed. Yeah. Um, my family was in the car business, so... Did they have a Miata dealership, a Mazda dealership? We had a Mazda dealership. Nice. Um, and uh, it, having a dealership was obviously, you know, uh, an incredible perk when you're 16. Sure. To get your driver's license. But um, I certainly didn't have the pick of the litter or anything like that. Yeah. My dad would basically give me a used car off the used car lot. Mm -hmm. And um, if it was in an advertisement, you know, slated to run that weekend, he'd say, yeah. you got to bring the car back to the lot. That's so I was driving a lot of different cars. But you kind of, you know, remember your first car. So I had a red Mazda Miata. Um, and, you know, uh, I feel like, you know, Miatas get some flack. But, like, it was just like a pure driver's car. So much fun. You know, it's funny. I mean, we... we uh yeah, you know, I told you we we do some marketing uh, as well, and so Mazda used to be a client of ours, and I got to know you know the, the cult of Miata really well. Oh yeah, and yeah, I mean I remember it as a kid was like when it came out, and it was I don't know you know it was a small convertible sports car, not that whatever. fast, but like people love those cars. Oh yeah, and are racing them in pockets all around the country. Yeah, on a daily basis. It's Easy amazing. to customize them, not yeah. too expensive, just incredible handling. Yeah. Um, my dad uh, uh, still has a Miata, actually, um, one that he took when uh, our family closed the dealership around 2005. He still has that same car, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, um, 14 years later. Yeah. Um, so I, I drove a lot of different cars early on. I, I think that even while I had my learner's permit, I learned how to drive stick on an MX-6, which mm -hmm. is another Mazda, a little bit bigger coupe. Um, I was lucky to come of age when there was a lot of fun cars sitting on the car lot. So yeah. I drove, um, I drove some Nissan Z's occasionally. Eventually, wound up uh, getting my grandfather's 240Z from 1972, which is cool. a car I still have. Beautiful. Um, and uh, you know, cars have kind of always been in my blood, a big part of my family's history. Uh, my great grandfather was a car dealer, so nice. Uh, the chance to uh, share a little bit of that with the world with with. Uh, the Larger Than Life podcast and kind of bring some of that background to the story I thought would be cool. Yeah, that is cool. Um, and so how'd you get uh, started as a journalist? So I knew early on that I wanted to be uh, a reporter. Not in the car dealer business. Not in the car dealer business. And my mom always told me she would kill me if I said I wanted to go in the car business. Is that right? Oh, yeah. The car business is a brutal business, you know. Um, you know, trying to close every deal, haggling mm -hmm. over every last dollar. It's a tough business. Um, so, but, but I was lucky in that I, I had something that I knew I wanted to do. And I wrote for my high school newspaper. And I had this incredible journalism advisor, a guy who's actually recently passed away, a guy named Gil Chesterton. Uh, and, you know, I, like I said, I just feel so fortunate. I loved it in high school. I went to college. I wrote for the college paper. I loved mm -hmm. it in college, and it was just obvious to me that it was something that I would pursue. Nice. What What in particular did you want to write about? So, early on, I wanted to be a sports reporter. Mm -hmm. I grew up, you know, sports crazed. Played baseball and and um, soccer, and uh, sports were just a big part of my life. I grew up going to UCLA football games, basketball games. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose in some way it was a dream of mine, you know, go to UCLA, write for the Daily Bruin, cover sports there. Um, and uh, doing it at UCLA was an incredible experience. You learn how to write on deadline. Mm -hmm. You learn how to deal with big personalities, you know, as a 19 or 20-year-old going to a locker room after the football team's, you know, just sure. been, been thrashed by USC or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it was great a great experience but i realized you know even before college was, was done i didn't want to be a sports reporter mm. um you know i was a sports fan as a kid and you you lose that and i think you know the real risk is that you you know something that you love can kind of be um it can kind of just curdle and yeah, yeah. uh and uh i much enjoyed stepping away you know i enjoyed stepping away from sports and going back to you know getting to be a sports fan mm -hmm. um, but what i always gravitated toward even early on, were the kind of quirky stories, the stories that are buried, uh, even in the world of sports, and mm. that kind of became something that I continued to pursue, you know, uh, when I got the chance professionally. This episode of Rebel Radio is brought to you by HoneyBook. Now, I love having HoneyBook as a sponsor of our show because 
you know, I run a creative business. I know a lot of you do. And if you're like me, you didn't get into it because you wanted to do the administration stuff. You got into it because you wanted to be creative. And so HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you organize all your client communications, bookings, contracts, invoices, all in one place. You can uh, consolidate the services you already use, like QuickBooks, MailChimp, uh, Gmail, all that stuff. Um, it's a great choice for client and business managers, for freelancers, business owners. It just lets you do everything that you need to do faster and better so that you can focus on, uh, on what you really want to do. Save time, do more of what you love using HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook is offering listeners of Rebel Radio 50% off your first year with the promo code REBEL. Payments flexible, and the promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to HoneyBook.com and use the promo code REBEL for 50% off your first order. That's HoneyBook.com, promo code REBEL. So ending up at the LA Times, which is obviously a uh, you know, big paper, um, uh, how does that how does that change the game? What does it what does it mean kind of within your uh, to your career to be at a place as big as the Times? Well, I grew up reading the LA Times. I'm from Los Angeles, and you know I flip right to the sports page and read Jim Murray's columns, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I always wanted to write for the LA Times. Um, and so when I joined the paper in 2013. Um, God, which is a long time ago now, six years. Um, it was it was just a thrill, and also yeah. to be here in my hometown. You know, you get the calls from aunts and uncles and grandparents and and old family friends saying they've seen you in the paper. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that obviously, at least early on, you get a kick out of that. I mean, look, journalism is going through this strange moment. Um, you know, I'm not breaking any news there. Um, the business is incredibly challenged, and I happened to join the LA Times during an incredibly difficult stretch of the paper's history. Um, you know, an ownership change 20 years ago uh, really upended things in terms of mm -hmm. the resources that the paper would have and, you know, its ability to uh, execute its mission. Um, and so, you know, early on in, in my time at the paper, you know, it was tough. There'd be, there were um, buyouts. Um, there were rumors about the sale of the paper. Right. We were owned by a company called Tronk that was cutting costs. And, um, you know, it's strange when you have something as a goal for so long and then you realize it. And then, sure. you know, of course, it's, it's never really quite what you expected it to be. Right. Um, the good news is that we have new, new ownership at the LA Times. Um, we, are, we were purchased last year by uh, uh, Patrick Soon-Shiong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the investment in the paper and morale... The quality of the journalism. I mean, I yeah. think it's it's apparent if you go to our website, listen to our podcasts, you know, open the pages of the paper, and and so it's been great in that respect. So go back to the beginning uh, when you start doing this professionally. I mean, you know, as I was telling you before we started, you know, I, I played around a little bit with being journalist, um, and it was a very different time, right? Where uh, you know, Rolling Stone, Vibe magazine. Um, you know, certainly in, in the music space, like these were, uh, they were becoming big businesses, you know, and uh, even, you know, I, we both wrote for the Daily Bruin, which, uh, you know, had a vibrant, like, business model in the 90s when I was there. And then, so I'm, I'm curious, like, as a person starting out in your career, you know, everyone's right now attracted to the tech industry because you can make a lot of money. Sure. Um, how do you look at, print media at the stage that it was at when you're starting and go, that's where I want to build my career. <laughs> well, I think part of it is that you're 21 and leaving college and you, yeah. you just go for it. Right. Sure. And I think that everybody, you know, you know, probably can think of moments in their life when they were 21 and just went for it. And, you know, um, Oh, I got a few of those. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I graduated from UCLA in 2005. We were in the middle of boom years in our economy, mm -hmm. but there was about to be a major crash, of course, and sure. some people are already starting to see that. Uh, you know, at the tail end of 2005, the economists were getting worried. Um, even though the economy was all right when I graduated, print media was already on the decline, of course, dramatically. 
Um, locally, the LA Times had just won a boatload of Pulitzers in the previous five years. So, you know, at least from quality perspective, things look good locally. Mm -hmm. um, little did we know what would come with, you know, um, the, the, the contracting the business. Sure. I think that I just was, you know, frankly, uh, you have to have a little bit of chutzpah. And also I had really supportive uh, parents mm. who knew that this was my dream and wanted to help me pursue it. And so I got a job as an intern at the Ventura County Star, yeah. you know, which is a paper, um, a, a great local paper, paper serving the community north of Los Angeles. And um, I covered anything they asked me to cover, you know, parades, um, uh, restaurant openings. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a story about a hot dog cart. Um, sure. And I worked there for a year. I think they made me a contributing writer eventually, and it was my first job in, in journalism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if not for the support of my family to be able to pursue something like that, I'm not sure I'd ever have lasted because it's a grind. It's a brutal business. Is that something if you're, uh, you know, speaking to college students, um, just go for it. Just sort of don't don't overanalyze. Yeah. And I've had the chance to do that. I went back and spoke to media students at UCLA yeah. over the last year. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, because this profession is so tough, you have to just be willing to push and push and push. Yeah. Um, and so the example that I know I've shared with you know um, college students before is that when I graduated um, from UCLA and after having worked at the Bruin for four years, I think I had two opportunities to consider. One was to go be an intern at the Ventura County Star mm -hmm. as a general assignment reporter. Um, and the other was to go be something like an editorial assistant in the sports department at the Orange County Register. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, that was actually a job offer. Um, it was working for peanuts, but it was a job. Sure. Um, and the offer from the Ventura County Star uh, had no promise of a job. Um, I think I was going to be getting a stipend for three months. Yeah. And, you know, I think that is one of sort of those moments when I look back now where, you know, I could have taken the, the, the opportunity that offered more security, but I already knew I didn't want to be a sports reporter, mm. like I said. Yeah. And it, it probably would have been just sort of like in terms of momentum and happiness to step back for yeah. a little bit of money and security. And um, I know I talked to all sorts of people in my life, but when I made the decision to go to the Ventura County Star, but it was certainly the best decision um, I could have made at the time. And so I know I shared that with some UCLA students I've spoke, spoken to over the last year to say, you do just have to go for it, particularly in this field. You know, this is not, um, you're not, uh, you know, uh, a lawyer. You didn't just get your JD. You mm -hmm. You're not going to work in Silicon Valley with an MBA. This is a different, <laughs> sure. this is a different animal. So you kind of just have to trust your gut in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's a good insight. I mean, I talk to a lot of people starting out in their careers trying to find a way in, especially to the, to the music, you know, the entertainment industry. And there's a tendency people want to just take anything to get in. And I kind of caution them away from that, right? Because, because it is so hard that the more things you stack against yourself, if you're in an area of the business that you're really not interested in, or if you're at a company that you can tell is just going to be the wrong fit for you, like just getting in the door at all costs, I think is a mistake. Yeah, I mean, some, and obviously there's famous success stories, uh, you know, sure. that start that way. But yeah, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of other tales that don't get told where people wind up in these dead end situations. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or we know, you know, probably we probably both know a lot of people that started out, you know, you live your 20s in one career and then it's so hard and painful that you just, you know, you, you don't do it anymore. Sure. I know a handful of lawyers who are no longer lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about larger than life. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I want, I want to get into the, the show itself and what it's all about, but tell, tell me where the idea came from. Yeah. Um, it's a shift for you to go from strictly on the print side to, uh, to being the voice and the face to some extent of this show. Yeah. Well, I didn't say to myself, I want to do a podcast and then find a story. Mm. I found the story yeah. first and realized audio is the way to tell this one. Racing. Racing to stop killings. That's Big Willie Robinson. You've probably never heard of him. But to some, Big Willie is a legend. He's, he's bigger than life, and literally bigger than life. Because you looked up to him, and you're like, wow. Six foot six, 300 pounds, Vietnam vet, freaking war hero. He's the man. First heard the name Big Willie Robinson two years ago now. Big Willie's the subject of the podcast. He's mm -hmm. this legendary LA street racer. So, 
I stumbled upon an old car of his kind of wasting away on this, this dusty lot in Northridge. Uh, I was there for a story for the LA Times that was completely unrelated to Big Willie, and I see this car. Um, the owner tells me a little bit about Big Willie. What was the car? It was a 1966 Plymouth Barracuda oh. that he had customized to look like a Dodge Charger Daytona. Oh, cool. So it had a big rear wing yeah. and the sleek nose cone. But the car was in horrible shape. The roof had been cut off. Willie mm. cut the roof off. Um, I mean, the foot wells were filled with cobwebs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the windshield was out. It was truly a mess, undrivable. Yeah. And uh, on, on the side of the door, it said, um, uh, uh, Brotherhood of Street Racers. Mm -hmm. um, and his name was written on it uh, in script, along with his wife's name, Tomiko. And you could tell that this car had some stories to tell. And the owner of the car, um, a guy named Ted Moser, who runs a company called Picture Car Warehouse. Mm -hmm. He outfits cars for uh, TV productions, film productions. Cool. He had been a friend of Willie's and had come to uh, own this car. And he told me about Willie at the, on this, you know, uh, sit, we're sitting out there like roasting. It's, it's you know, uh -huh. it's L.A., so it's, you sure. know, May, but it's 100 degrees. And he, we're standing out on this lot, and he tells me the story. And um, I honestly couldn't believe it was real. He told me about Willie's connections to Hollywood, connections to the Los Angeles Times, yeah. connections to uh, the mayor of L.A., Tom Bradley, and it just sounded unreal. And I was so intrigued by it. And I started doing some research, and that's kind of when the idea uh, you know, came about that this should be an audio story. Mm -hmm. um, I immersed myself in this world of Willie's in the 60s and 70s. Um, so, you know, I started talking to his, his members of his Brotherhood of Street Racers. They started telling me about the music Willie likes. I'd be like listening to Curtis Mayfield in my car. Toward your destination Though you may find from time to time Complication uh, The Rascals, a bunch of old bands, and driving around L.A. And just, it was so evocative. And I just thought, you know, with, uh, not, with a podcast, you can, you can create you know, this world, you can bring it to life. Yeah. And uh, I came across an interview of Willie's that uh, one of the members of the Brotherhood of Street Racers had conduct conducted, and, you know, Willie has this booming voice, and he's a good storyteller, and I just thought, people should hear it from him, not 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 necessarily from me. Yeah. And that's where it came from. Nice. And so how long is that, how long have you been working on it now? So I didn't really get involved in the project until last year, so it hasn't mm -hmm. been two years in the making. It's more like a year in the making. Yeah. Um, that's uh, still a big... Yeah. Still a big undertaking. Yeah. And I've done stories before that have taken, you know, a year or yeah. nearly a year. Um, but this was unique in in terms of the scope of it, the breadth of it. I mean, I spoke to more than 100 people for the story. Wow. You know, traveled. I was in Chicago. I was in Indianapolis. Um, I definitely got a little bit obsessed with the story. I mean, all these weird avenues that I began pursuing. I, I mean, I figured out that... A lot of the vintage, a lot of the old car magazines don't have great archives. Mm -hmm. And so if I wanted to find old articles about Willie, one of the best places to look was eBay. Oh, wow. And so I just started buying up all these old car magazines on eBay. Like my mailman must have thought I was crazy because like every other day for a while there, you'd get, you know, old copies of drag racing or car yeah. craft delivered on the front uh, porch. That's cool. Yeah. Nice. Um, you know, we think of L.A. as synonymous with car culture. Um, but I think a lot of people don't really understand what that means, right? Like, we think of it in terms, in modern terms, that we love our cars and we're always sitting in traffic and whatever. But, what, you know, having gone through this, what do you think the impact of car culture has been on Los Angeles? Sure. I mean, obviously, there's all the cliches about people being stuck in their cars and, you know, addicted to their cars and sure. how cars are, uh, a, you know, a way for people to express themselves personally. Um, and uh, look, I think some of that's true. I think that, you know, you could argue that, like, Detroit is the car capital of America, right? Because sure. of all of the American manufacturers being based there. But in terms of culture, I think we ha can lay claim to being the capital. And I think that um, a lot of that is related to um, aesthetics. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Southern California has long been, like, a hub for, for artists and creators. And I think that uh, the car truly is a way that people have expressed themselves. And that goes back to, you know, hot rods of the 50s sure. and then the muscle cars of the 60s and, and the dragsters of that era as well. Um, I think that, like, 
you know, it's this crazy amalgamation of things that makes us such an interesting place for cars. Like, let's be real, it's like the weather, mm-hmm. you know, like convertibles and, and low riders and all that can flourish here because, like, yeah. who doesn't want to have a drop top when it's, like, 80 degrees every right. day? Um, yeah, low rider doesn't really work when it's icy out, does it? I guess not. Yeah, exactly. Great <laughs> point. Um, but, like, also, you know, Big Willie founded the Brotherhood of Street Racers here in the 60s. Yeah. The... the um, uh, the uh, NHRA was founded in Southern California uh, a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So there's important car organizations that, that have been out here. And, and I think that like tuner culture is another thing we can talk about in sure. the 90s with you know, the Hondas, Toyotas, Nissan, Mazdas of the world. Um, you know, I think because we're so um, diverse here in Southern California, uh, you know, and, and we're closer to uh, Japan, where a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, these Japanese companies, uh, you know, were turning out amazing cars in that era. Like, it's, we've been able to cultivate that, too. And I'm not yeah. sure you have the same culture on the East Coast. No, it's, I think it's, it's very different. Um, and listening to the, to the podcast, which, you know, I'm really enjoying. Oh, thanks. Um, well, you know, in part, I mean, I, you know, I love cars. Uh, I grew up, my uncle used to race Mopars. Oh, cool. Kind of in, informally, not uh, just like whenever we'd pass someone else on the street. Well, Willie was a Mopar guy, so. Yeah. Uh, he had a 67 GTX that was kind of his main car. That's awesome. That was ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, three or four always in the front lawn that he was working on. Um, but uh, but in some ways, the podcast isn't really about that, right? It's about, uh, it's about race yeah. in, in Los Angeles. Um, and I think, you know, I find that really interesting, right? Like how, how those things kind of, uh, overlap, uh, between car culture and sort of, you know, LA's history of race relations and, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's a big part of the podcast. And yeah. I also, you know, I hesitate to, to talk about the cars, car side of it too much because I don't want to turn people off who aren't interested in cars because right. really this is a story about a man and yeah. what he accomplished and the sort of the the organization that he created and the people whose lives he touched and he did it this pivotal time in LA's history so a lot of the podcast takes place uh, uh, against the backdrop of the Watts riots of 1965 mm-hmm. um, this huge huge black mark on LA's reputation at the time at a time when LA was growing and you know post-world war ii sure to have kind of the depths of the city's racism exposed for all the world to see via these riots was was a catastrophe. Yeah. Um, and um, Big Willie Robinson comes along with this notion that cars can unite people, and it sounds really simple and kind of naive, mm-hmm. but um, it actually worked. I mean, one of the parts of the story that people kind of can't believe is that he worked with the Los Angeles Police Department to stage street races, yeah. and that the LAPD reached out to him because it saw him as a way to connect with South South Los Angeles after Mm. the riots. Um, And, you know, we live in this incredibly divided time these days. People often don't see eye to eye. And, um, you know, Willie's message, I think, could resonate today with people. And and I think that also just for the sheer wow factor of like, man, were cops really doing this? Uh um, Is something that I think, you know, people might really enjoy. And we spent a lot of time getting into that, at least in the early parts of the podcast. Uh, but even later in our podcast, uh, I, I obviously won't give anything away, but, um, you know, there was another tragic riot in Los Angeles in 1992, and yeah. Willie was still around, and his story intersects with that riot in a significant way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you can't talk about a story without talking about race relations, and, and, you know, it's an important part of the story. So one of the things that really stands out to me, and I think it's, I think it's the point of the podcast, is that... Um, you know, you're talking about big cultural movements, right? Whether it's call culture or, or the way that, uh, you know, race relations evolves. But it really comes down to this one guy that had he, you know, what, I, what I'm taking is that had he not been um, six foot six and black and probably a former soldier, um, that he would not have been able to accomplish yeah, I mean, he was what just, he did. yeah, he was an incredible personality. I mean, the show is called Larger Than Life, and I yeah. know it's a bit on the nose, but that's what he was. Um, he 
he was a leader and people got in line behind him and he was able to bridge these big gaps of class and culture and race and status in a way that not everybody can. Yeah. Um, and you know, as part of the story, I spoke with historians of African-American history to get a sense of, you know, um, his place in, in LA's history. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the really interesting uh, people I spoke to was a woman named Brenda Stevenson, who is a professor of African-American history at UCLA. And you know, she told me that she doesn't see anybody these days uh, who is filling that role in Los Angeles. An interesting name that has come up over the last six months or so, unfortunately, of course, is, is Nipsey Hussle. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people looked at what Nipsey was doing um, in South LA as, uh, you know, uh, besides being this incredible positive, you know, maybe in some way it was, you know, taking a torch from a guy like Big Willie. Um, I find Nipsey Hussle so interesting. I mean, um, like outside of, you know, my circle of friends who are into West Coast hip hop, like nobody ever talked about this guy until he died. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, which is not a, you know, that's not a slight to what he was doing, right? But it's, I think it's so interesting how the world has decided to pay attention mm -hmm. after he's gone. Yeah, that's um, interesting. In point. a way that it, it didn't. I mean, he was. You know, you know, you see him on the local news now, talking about him, and and that was never happening. Right. Uh, well, he that's was interesting. Alive. And and you know, conversely, uh, Big Willie Robinson got a lot of attention in his yeah. heyday. We forget it now because sure. some of this was 40, 50 years ago. But um, as part of our podcast, you know, we dug up archival video of local newscasts where he had Mayor Tom Bradley out at the racetrack with him. Mm -hmm. um, he was covered regularly by the Los Angeles Times and car magazines across the country I dug up a story in, in Newsweek mm -hmm. about the man when he was first getting off the ground. So his message was something that did resonate and did attract attention because of how unique it was. Um, I also just think it's a different time uh, with the way media works these days. Maybe it was easier for a guy like Willie to cut through the, through the noise and, and, and get some attention. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's easy, at least for me, to sort of think that, um, you know, the news cycle is so cluttered that uh, for anyone or anything to kind of break through and be meaningful seems really challenging. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's always been that way. I don't know, but uh, but I think yeah. to your point, right? It does. There does seem a void of uh, of like someone who's going to come in and make a big difference in our lives. Yeah, and I think that you know, Big Willie Robinson was the guy who made the most of his moment. Yeah. You know, the rubble was basically still on the ground in South LA when he began pushing this message. And, you know, the way he told the story was that the police reached out to him mm -hmm. and uh, arranged for a meeting uh, uh, at City Hall with a bunch of, you know, the powers that be in L.A., including Tom Bradley, who was not yet mayor, but it was a rising uh, political star. He was a city councilman. Yeah. And, you know, you know, put yourself in Willie's shoes. This was an opportunity, but this was just after the Watts riots, you mm -hmm. know, riot that, um, you know, destroyed huge sections of South L.A. and, um left, you know, nearly three dozen people dead. I mean, maybe some, some people wouldn't have taken that meeting, right? Yeah, but absolutely. he had this goal that he wanted to bring people together and, you know, he went for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think in some ways, you know, you, you know, as you said, these are divided times. I think um, there's a, it feels different now in that we seem to consider the source first. And maybe it's, Maybe it's kind of always been that way, but I don't think so. I'm reading a book right now about Malcolm X, and there's talks about, you know, him meeting with leaders of the Ku Klux Klan and meeting with, uh, you know, Islamic leaders and meeting with civil rights leaders. And it, it doesn't feel like that would happen today, right, that we're sort of so entrenched in our side, whatever, however we define that. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I w but to your point, you know, maybe it takes the certain, the right kind of personality to to break through that. Right. It's this kind of like crazy alchemy of like the right personality, the right time, sure. the right benefactors who are willing to stick their own necks out yeah. uh, to help. 
yeah. like a Mayor Tom Bradley, LA's first black mayor. You know, Mayor Bradley pushed hard to get Willie a racetrack down at Terminal Island. Sure. You know, uh, would every mayor have done that? Uh, the prior Probably mayor, not. Sam Yorty, was known for running a racist campaign right. to defeat Bradley, you know, a handful of years earlier. Yeah. Um, so it's this sort of, like I said, things kind of need to be just right, it seems like, for something like this to occur. What was your biggest learning or surprise kind of in, in going through this, uh, this project? Like in terms of the making of it? Or yeah. About, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I got a real education and it's kind of rare that, you know, within your, your own, um, you know, uh, job, you can get uh, a whole new skill set, you yeah. know, mid-career. Yeah. Um, so the transition to uh, audio reporting was fascinating, challenging, frustrating, exciting, all of those things. Um, you have to learn how to do some things all over again. Mm. Everything uh, from the technical stuff, how to mic things up, um, to how to conduct an interview. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think uh, when you're a newspaper reporter, you can kind of butt in, interject, uh, you know, just learn to keep my mouth shut so I didn't step on the source's words, uh, right. knowing that we needed nice, clean audio. I mean, little things, big and small. Um, uh, it was just an education. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, got to work with some incredible people. We, we um, uh, Daily Times has made podcasts before, um, but we're still learning. Um, my editor at Daily Times uh, is uh, Kimi Oshino. She worked on this project. Um, the editor of the podcast is Catherine St. Louis and Grant Irving's the producer. And really the four of us were kind of in a bunker at times, nice. uh, really, really working things out. And it was, a, uh, it, it was an experience, but you know, uh, I can tell you now I'm ready to do it again. Are you? Yeah. That's cool. Um, so you, you sort of talked about it, but are you, um, you know, was there any, uh, what was your thought process about kind of stepping in front of the mic? Yeah, uh, I mean, and sort of being the one to to share uh, Big Willie's st uh, uh, story. I mean, I think it just felt natural as I got deeper and deeper into the story and became um, kind of immersed in this world that I would tell the story, be the host of the show, and um, partly because a little bit of my own um, experience as a car guy growing up in Los Angeles. Um, it just felt that there were places in the story where I could um, share a little bit more with listeners. You know, one of the great things about podcasting and audio storytelling is the intimacy of it, and mm -hmm. uh, you want to be able to connect with your listeners. Hope they like what they you hope that they like what they hear. And so, I you know, besides probably the normal jitters of getting into the studio for the first time, yeah. and you know the you know the normal jitters of wondering how it would be received, it felt natural that that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, so when you do a podcast like this, you know, we're on every week. Um, there's, there's no break. Right. Um, and so explain the, the kind of wisdom of um, this, this show is seven episodes, right? That's right. Um, why does that make sense for the LA Times? A narrative podcast that, you know, has a beginning and end. Yeah. Well, I think it's a business we um, have had a lot of success in sure. so far with Dirty John first and then yep. Man in the Window, which came out uh, just a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think we want to tell these these quintessential L.A. and California tales, ones that um, say something bigger um, uh, about our region and, you know, have wide appeal. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's this great mystery like Dirty John or something like this, a uh, window into the world of car culture and race relations, mm -hmm. you know, um, we think these are stories that deserve to be told. Sure. Um, and it's exciting to be at the paper at a time like this when we're really leaning into podcasting. Um, it certainly wasn't a discipline um, that we uh, were aggressive with in under the previous regime. Right. And so it's it's a real pleasure to see it now. Um, you know, we do have a we have a weekly entertainment uh, show called The Real. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's obviously a lot of space for that type of um, podcast as well. Um, I think just the idea of a narrative that, um, you know, um, transports somebody to another world and, you know, uh, makes them think a little bit is something that, you know, we should be in the business of. And, and I know that 
that I, you know, I, I love cereal, I love S-Town, I love Caliphate from the New York Times, so, you know, it's a medium that I believe in myself. Hey, if you're enjoying this one, let's go back into Rebel Radio archives. Uh, another friend from the LA Times was on maybe about a year ago, my man Clint Schaff, who um, leads the LA Times studios. He's the one putting the podcast together, making those deals happen, kind of bringing that, that whole creative vision to life. He's got some great stories about his journey, um, and I hope you'll dig that one too. You, I don't know if this is a fair question, but, um, you know, Dirty John was a big success. There's a movie or TV series now, right? Um, did it feel, is there a certain pressure on you making this podcast to sort of follow that? Um, like, That's like, interesting. I have to say, I think they're kind of different animals. Sure. Um, fair enough. So I think, you know you always put some pressure on yourself to deliver something that um, is good and that audiences will love. Yeah. But, um, you know, Dirty John is probably what in the, the pantheon of, of top uh, narrative podcasts. Right. Um, so uh, that wasn't something that I was focused on. I think that true crime is... A, is you don't have people like sitting there talking about like movie rights. <laughs> well, uh, people, people may be curious about it, but I'm just, I'm still focused on getting this podcast out the door. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, I've got to go listen to some masters after this. Um, but no, I've just been so laser focused on, on delivering the, the show. Yeah. We have this incredible website that I always encourage people to go to. Um, while this is fantastically told as an audio tale, I mean, it's so visual too. Absolutely. You've got these incredible muscle cars. You've got seventies LA yeah. with the, with the wild hair and wild clothes. And mm -hmm. we have incredible archival photos and videos. What's the site? So the, the page is latimes.com slash larger than life. Okay, cool. And, um, and we have a per episode guide. So every, oh, nice. every day a new episode is released, there's a new portion of the website that yeah. is published. And it roughly follows the episode. So talk about that, right? Because, you know, we talk about the difference of being, you know, visually or uh, uh, visible. But you're also responsible in, to some extent for getting people to the show, right? Whereas, you know, I think journalists, certainly in, in the era that I started, you kind of wrote your thing and then your work was done, right? Right. Um, and the publisher took care of promotion and whatever. But um, how, how do you find that role or how conscious are you of, you know, thinking about, I mean, I said, you know, I follow your Twitter and there's, Pretty much everything is is about larger than life um, at the moment. Sadly, yeah. for some of my followers who aren't interested. <laughs> yeah, but but that's the job, right? Is sure. is to get people to that content. Yeah. Um, does that feel different, or is that just have you just come to accept that that's kind of just part of the job nowadays? Well, I can't you know I can't speak for all my colleagues, but I think that journalists over the last you know half decade or so yeah. have become much more comfortable with the 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 act of promoting their stories and trying to find audiences for their stories. Mm -hmm. um, I think you are right. Back in the day, you would turn in a story and it would run and, you know, it was maybe almost seen as gauche to kind of be advocating too sure. much for your story. That, yeah. that wasn't the role of the journalist. But, you know, in this crazily saturated media market, you have to fight for yeah. every, um, every eyeball or every set of ears. So what, what have you found that works? Well, it helps that I work at the LA Times, which which has you know millions of Twitter followers of and and yeah. a newspaper that hundreds of thousands of people read. So we had a story on the on the cover of the newspaper on Sunday um, that uh, tells a little bit of the story of Big Willie and also my journey of reporting it. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, I have to say it sounds old fashioned, but that feels like it worked. Um, the amount of feedback that I got, um, I imagine, uh, just from the, the being on the cover of the Sunday Times, uh, sure. was was really impressive. Um, you know, it helps that the LA Times has hired a, a, a slew of people who work on our audience engagement team. Mm -hmm. Obviously, 15, 20 years ago, there's no such thing as an right. audience engagement team. So I work with um, uh, a great journalist named Tessa Bangs, and uh, she's working on Larger Than Life uh, every day mm -hmm. to find ways to share it with people. So, um, so then do you have to, I don't know, fight's the right word, but 
you know, there are a lot of things that can go on the front page. There are a lot of things that can go in a in an LA Times Twitter post at any moment, right? Sure. Um, how much is that? How much work do you have to do internally to sort of keep this project a priority? Sure. Well, you know, I'm lucky in that my editor Kim Yoshino, who I mentioned a moment ago, just really believes in the project, and so. Some of that, uh, so some of those conversations, I'm I'm not privy to, and mm -hmm. I'm happy that that's yeah, happening yeah, that's uh, good. elsewhere. Sure. Um, I think that you know the LA Times is committed to this kind of storytelling, whether it's my project or any other project. Yeah. Um, uh, a colleague of mine just published this incredible piece on uh, rising sea levels in California and what it's going to do to our coast and coastal communities, and you know the level of support to to make sure people saw that was was a great thing to see. Yeah. It's not just about the podcast; it's sure. about all of our product. One of the cool things we have done, which I will kind of tout for a minute, is um, we started a Facebook group. Mm -hmm. um, we knew that there was going to be some diehards that always wanted more uh, related to Big Willie and, and his story. Yeah. And um, uh, we took a page from a Boston Globe podcast called Last Scene, which is about a, the Gardner um, Museum art heist. Mm. Uh, and uh, we saw that they had a really successful Facebook group that allowed um, fans to engage and learn more. And, nice. and we launched one about a month ago uh, to begin sharing parts of the story. I'm on there every day interacting with other members. And um, that's been a really interesting way. It's something I've not done before mm -hmm. and um, uh, something that I think the LA Times you know, might do more of. Um, I imagine you have a strong perspective uh, being the son of a car dealer sure. and, uh, and having done this story. but. You know, car culture certainly is changing. There's every few months there's a report about how millennials don't want to own cars anymore. Um, weirdly, it's SUVs are overtaking uh, passenger cars. As right, the, the sedan is dying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with autonomous vehicles, there's the future, I think, of driving is in question. Um, what do you think that that does to L.A.? as you look to the future of just car culture changing. Sure. And let's not forget that LA has this r rapidly growing public transportation system with light sure. rail right. and you know a subway line that's being built under Wilshire as we speak. So yeah, yeah I think it's 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 true that you know maybe even it's happening now but certainly in the next couple of years kids who turn 16 maybe there's not that you know magnetic pull to the DMV to get a driver's license and mm -hmm. get a drive, you know that you know, because of things like Uber and Lyft and um, or even yeah. scooters and, Absolutely. you know, eventually autonomous vehicles and ride sharing, you know, you can, you know, have a kind of freedom in L.A. that you couldn't have previously unless you owned a car. Right. So, I mean, I think that's really liberating. And that's a great thing. I mean, um, uh, I'm, I use Lyft this weekend a handful of times, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think you couple all that with, you know, uh, issues related to our dependency on fossil fuel mm -hmm. and and um, global warming and um, it's obvious that the, the culture is changing and, and I think I mean it'll be fascinating to see how kind of the enthusiast side of the car world adapts to that you know I think that a lot of people who read Hot Rod magazine and still work on their cars on weekends yeah. you know they probably don't give a rip about um, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle but no certainly not. right but maybe eventually they will and they'll find ways to to make that their own you know it is funny i mean uh it's funny you say that because i um whenever i see auto racing i i kind of am just can only think about like what's the environmental impact of a nascar race or a formula one or whatever no one seems to care about that right like there's no process not, not saying that there should be yeah um I think there's even, but I do think, you know, even auto racing is maybe moving, right? Well, certainly there's like, you know, Formula E and there are, yeah. there are there's movement in that direction. But um, just the amount of fossil fuel that's blown every weekend at, at you know, various tracks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I will tell you, I did not hear much conversation about global warming in the year I spent um, in the world of L.A. street racing. But I, I did spend some time at some drag strips and I did go to Irwindale Speedway on a Thursday night. And on Thursday nights, Irwindale... Speedway has a, a, a run what you brung event where mm -hmm. pretty much you can show up with your car and if it passes some basic safety checks, you pay a little bit of money, you can race it on their eighth mile drag strip. Nice. And um, I interviewed a guy, uh, an older gentleman who had a Tesla. 
um, a Model S, and he yeah. kind of he was dusting people. That's a yeah, fast bet, car for sure. Um, that, uh, and he was having a ball. Insane mode or whatever it is. Yeah, he, I think ludicrous he had ludicrous mode. mode. I'm not yeah. sure if he had it, but it was whatever it was. He was beating people off the line. You've got, you know, it. incredible torque in that car. Sure. And, did you uh, race? I didn't race that day. I did get some did instruction at Irwindale. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, that day I was just an observer and I was interviewing people. I actually stumbled upon somebody who knew Big Willie well uh, in the parking lot. Oh, nice. Um, I did go back to Irwindale. A handful of days later with my 240z my grandfather's old car mm. and got some instruction from a guy named kevin stevens there mm -hmm. and the thinking was just if i'm going to tell the story and uh interview all these street racers i have to know what it feels like to sort of try to get the best jump off the line yeah. and uh and deliver the best time and uh i did all right my car is not that fast it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty stock it's got sure. it's got something like 150 horsepower right um but uh i um I gained a real respect for what these guys do. Um, it's a real skill, and you know, even though there's nobody in the grandstand, I mean, I was I was nervous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's next? What's next? That's a good question. I actually don't know. I've got to finish this. Like I said, okay. you know, even though effectively we're done, um, to what we were talking about earlier, you know, kind of building an audience and audience engagement. You know, it means that I'm on that Facebook group every day, interacting with people. Yeah. Same thing with Twitter. Um, one of the really fun things about the story is that now that it's out in the world, people can react to it. You know, mm. we were in this little bubble making this thing, wondering how people would receive it. But now I'm getting tips and new stories are coming to light. Oh, that's cool. Um, I'll share one really quickly. So um, Big Willie uh, counted Otis Chandler, the, the publisher of the LA Times, as one of his benefactors. Mm -hmm. And Chandler's family owned the LA Times. You know, he was a media mogul. Right. Um, and he backed Big Willie. Um, and... Uh, they, uh, in the 90s, Chandler wrote letters on his behalf advocating for the reopening of Willie's track. And around the same time, Chandler commissioned this beautiful tapestry. It's this piece of art um, that depicts Big Willie and a local street race. Mm. Um, and uh, I wound up interviewing the artists, a guy named Keith Collins and another guy named Richard Petrushka. They were really generous with their time and told me about the making of this tapestry. Um, they showed me a picture of it. And I asked, where, where is it? And they said, oh, we, last we heard, it's, it's, it's in the Mojave Desert in a storage locker, but we're not quite sure of the details. Yeah. And, you know, it became this kind of mystery, but it was pretty much a dead end. Um, so the podcast, um, in a later episode, mentions something about this tapestry, and our website um, uh, has something up about the tapestry and an image of it, but that's basically it. So just yesterday, I got a text message from one of the street racers uh, who's part of the story, a guy named Fabian Arroyo. Mm -hmm. He truly randomly walked into a classic car shop in Orange County, and the tapestry was on the wall. No way. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. That's cool. He gave me the phone number of, of the manager of the shop, and uh, I called called him and had a little chat yesterday, and it, it really was just as um, Arroyo had described it. He, the, the, the shop uh, shop's manager said, yeah, this guy came in, to check out our shop and saw this thing on the wall and mm -hmm. just started screaming. So this tapestry that we all wondered about its whereabouts and think, thought it might be lost somewhere in the Mojave was just hanging on the wall of a car shop in, in Orange County. So I'm going to go see it later this week. Um, and it's like this, you know, physical object that really links Big Willie and his story to Otis yeah. Chandler and the LA Times, which is, which is kind of a, a cool thing. Sure. That's cool. And, and I think it's especially interesting to, to see a story like this take a life of its own and to see the you know where um it starts with you but then these other people who are touched by the story start to get involved and kind of weave their own yeah and that's part of the facebook group people are sharing stories yeah sharing photos videos and you know I i'm there chiming in but i don't need to be there it, mm -hmm. it's it's sort of a, a a living breathing thing at this point yeah amazing yeah um okay before i let you go i've got some uh i have a lightning round sure we got to get into. Oh, uh, James hates I always do this. Before that, <laughs> um, so if you could have any car, what would it be? I should have been prepared for this question. All right, any car, what would it be? I'll give you two answers. One like within the realm of possibility, right? And okay. one that's just stupid and, and impossible. Yeah, it's okay. I would say, you know, particularly because of uh, being a, a, 
a teenager, played a lot of video games in the 90s. Uh, the Skyline GTR, the R34, mm -hmm. uh, a, a Nissan um, a sports car that was never made uh, or never sold in the United States, but was kind of this hero car yeah. in Japan. That would be one in this kind of electric blue that is probably what you know I saw it in, in the Gran Turismo video sure. game back in the day. So probably that one. They you do see them imported to the states these days, um, but uh, that's a cool one. Yeah. Um, and then just in terms of sheer ridiculousness, I mean, uh, from the same era, you know, all your like formative car memories are when you're like a teenager, right? Like reading like Motor Trend or whatever. Yep. Uh, I would say the McLaren F1 mm -hmm. um, is just something that is, you know, they make cars these days that are faster and um, and you know more radical in terms of you know the G forces and the skid pad or whatever. But yeah. that car is just a thing of beauty. It's such a combination of grace and speed Absolutely. and rarity. So. Yeah. There's two for you. Nice. Those are good ones. Um, what's your favorite city to travel to? Hmm. I was just in uh, uh, Honolulu, uh -huh. which I think, I'm not sure it's my favorite, and I think it can get a bad rap because of the touristy vibe of Waikiki. Yeah. Um, but I think Oahu is this fascinating place. Hundreds of thousands of people living in a metropolis on a tropical island. Crazy. With this crazy, diverse culture. Of, of of Japanese immigrants and and people from China and you know uh, I, I I love Hawaii and I think that it's a great place. I mean, the food scene is remarkable there. Mm -hmm. uh, great bars, obviously beautiful beaches. So uh, that's a good one. That's I love an, it there. That's one I like. Yeah, I love it there, and I do think it's like it. You know, everything else gets overshadowed by that. You know, one mile strip of beach or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, there's great diversity there, and, really and the North Shore is beautiful. You go to one of those shrimp trucks on the North Shore. Mm -hmm. You know, watch the surfers at like Waimea Bay. It's just, you know, it's nice. paradise. That's a good one. Um, favorite DJ? Favorite DJ? That's an interesting one. All right, here's here's one for you. Okay. So, uh, I went to Beverly High. Yeah. And I was a pole vaulter. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to blow up a spot a little bit. Uh, Grant Shapiro, who's a, a DJ in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. Grant Shapiro and I pole vaulted together for a little while. Oh, no way. Um, and Grant's a great guy, so how about that? That's funny. That's a good one. What's the last great book you read? I'm reading a remarkable book right now by Susan Orlean called The Library Book. Okay. Um, she's, uh, it's she's, a book about a book. Yeah, in a way. Um, it's, uh, it's about the Los Angeles Central Library and mm. the fire that almost destroyed it. Oh, wow. And also tells the history of the library and this uh, this this you know sort of sprawling library system we have here and it gets into something you know that i think that uh i never really thought about how the the library is this incredible place in our in our uh, public life where anybody can go and and you know where uh, uh people really do come together um and uh she's just so gifted i could probably you know read her writing about you know uh what she had for lunch that day that's cool what movie have you seen the most in your life? Hmm. Well, I will tell you that I've seen nearly all of the Fast and Furious movies. Okay. And I dipped into dipped into that series while while making this podcast. Yeah. Um, but that is not my answer. I mean, honestly, what movie have I seen most in my life? I'm sure I could give you some like highfalutin answer, like uh -huh. The Conformist or something like that. Oh wow! But that's not it. That's, that's definitely not, not true. Um, I mean, it's probably something, I know what it is. It's The Big Lebowski. So The Big Lebowski, Great. for me... I watched it this just, weekend. Yeah, I actually, during a tough day of reporting on this project, yeah. I needed to unwind, and I told my wife, Jessica, we are saying, let's just throw on a movie tonight, and we watched The Big Lebowski, and I hadn't seen it in years, but it just holds up so well. So good. Yeah. So good. Yeah, I saw it. I mean, that's one that, like, if you just... If you're scrolling through and it's on, you're just going to watch it from wherever until the end. Yeah. Yeah. And the cast. I mean, if you haven't seen it in a while, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, just yeah. the, the people who pop up in that film. Yeah, it's great. Um, tell me one decision that changed your life forever. Oh, well, I mean, marrying my wife, Jessica, was certainly the best decision I ever made. Nice. Um, probably the best decision she ever, she ever made to say yes is probably <laughs> how I should uh, phrase it. Um, cool. Uh yeah, but you know, also becoming a journalist. I mean, it was—it's such an incredible career. The fact that you get to follow your curiosity, yeah. and you know, if you're lucky enough, you could tell stories that really resonate with people. I mean, 
it's a privilege to be able to do that. Nice. If I uh, if I worked for you or I was on your podcast team, um, what's something I would hear you say over and over? Can we record that again? <laughs> I know, I'm sure, sure. I had, I'm sure I had a reputation among my you know uh, uh, on the team with our producer, uh, particularly with Grant, to want to get it just right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a good instinct, but it's also kind of a curse sometimes. Sometimes you just have to. Of course. Let it go. Yeah. That's good, though. I mean, I think you, um, I mean, obviously, as a journalist, uh, the editing process is very important. Uh, I know as a podcaster, I tend to, like, do stuff and then kind of move on. And sometimes I make myself go back and, you know, reread it over or whatever. And uh, it's usually better the next time. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. good insight. That's something to keep in mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Seriously. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, man. It was fun talking to you. Yeah, no, uh, I really enjoying it. Larger Than Life. Thank you. Um, any, anyone who's not checked out Larger Than Life should find it anywhere that uh, podcasts. That's right. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, I can't wait to see the next story. Yeah, I'm, I'll be Whatever thinking of another, be. you know, Larger Than Life tale, hopefully. Good stuff. Yeah. Right on. That was Daniel Miller host of the Larger Than Life podcast on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Uh, make sure you leave us a comment. Get us a, get us a review. Whatever you have to say, you can say it. Um, at Rebel Radio Net is all of our socials, Facebook, Twitter. You can find videos of a lot of our episodes showing up on our YouTube page. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace. <laughs>